Well, I was very grateful um, for when the choir dismissed themselves from the loft to the pews that they filled in a few of these seats over here because I thought the word had gotten out that I wasn't retiring but had some kind of communicable disease. I was feeling very lonely over here, so thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, I was asked by the worship department to put together a few final thoughts um, before my last Sunday on May 21, and we're in the midst of that. Um, said a few things about discipleship. I've said some things about the church. And today I want to, to have our attention focus on, on God, which sounds like a very broad topic. And as we get into it, uh, we'll discover that's exactly what it is. Um, but, but what do you think about when you think about God? What do you think about when you think about God? I mean, if you ask children what do they think about when they think about God and have them draw pictures of it, things like this come out. And um, they have different ideas and different drawings and very simple minds. And, um, you know, it's interesting in today's society, right, that a child would draw a handgun with the phrase, God is with you. I mean, what does that say about our society and, the, and what kids think about? But, you know, there it is. I mean, if you ask adults the same question, what do you think about when you think about God? They have different images. We've got these old powerful images of God and the Ten Commandments and God blessing everybody. And some ideas are Morgan Freeman. Maybe we'll meet him when we get to heaven. Maybe he's God. I don't know. And when you ask an atheist what they think about God, this is the picture they draw. That's the picture they draw. You know, atheists, they don't believe in God. You get it now? It's like a blank canvas. Too subtle for these people at this time of day. I've been sorting through 43 years' worth of books in my office and noticed that I have several shelves with theology books. Theology books are an attempt for people to help us understand who God is and how God functions and how we relate with God. John Calvin, the patron saint of Reformed theology, has published the Institutes of the Christian Religion in which He's described and tried to help us understand the triune God and man's relationship with God. It's been required reading and a tremendous resource for us reform types throughout the history of reform thinking. Theologians make every attempt to explain God and define God and help us understand God, but every one of them fails. God cannot be completely explained or defined or understood. All of our attempts, and this might be anathema here, all of our attempts, even Calvin's, fall short of helping us understand who God is. We need God, however. We know that. An ancient writer of the wisdom that is recorded in the book of Ecclesiastes says, So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowing knowledge and skill, and they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days they work and which is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This, too, is meaningless. So without God, there is no significance, there is no meaning, there is no purpose, and only God provides that for us. 
writer, biblical scholar, theologian J.B. Phillips a long time ago, however, reminds us that our God is too small. Whatever we think about God, whatever we believe we know about God, uh, Calvin's four books of the Institutes of the Christian Religion is too small of thinking about God. God is much bigger than anything we can think about. Trying to define God or putting him into a system or believing that God is captured in a particular theological position only limits God. Now we have a reformed understanding of God, which includes some kind of peculiar doctrines if you talk with people who have other kinds of backgrounds. I mean, for instance, if you want to really get a glazed over look on a face of someone that you're having a conversation with, try to explain to them the doctrine of predestination and election. I'm not even sure we understand it, but in other denominations and other theological perspectives, they don't even think about it together. They don't write about it, but we think this is, the, is a big deal. Or try to explain to a Baptist our position on infant baptism. And they'll ask some silly question like, well, where are are infants baptized in the Bible? And we have our explanation of that, but they don't buy it. Seeking to understand God is not a bad thing. It only becomes problematic when we think that our viewpoint is right and any other viewpoint is wrong. When we say this phrase, when we use this phrase, this is what the Bible says, we need to remember that someone else with a different opinion says exactly the same thing. This is what the Bible says. And arrive at two different points and two different conclusions, especially when it comes to describing God. There are some who believe that the Bible teaches that God is an angry being who punishes them every time they step out of line. Or that God is eternally disappointed with us and there's probably very little hope. There are theological positions that help us major in shame and guilt. There are others that help portray God as Santa Claus or a great grandfather who gives all of his children everything that they want and spoils them rotten. We long to define and understand God. But God is always bigger than we think. For instance, we like to think that God is nice and safe. But God can be scary. The scriptures tell us that no one has ever seen the face of God. The Old Testament prophets hid their faces from God. Elijah ran away from God. Jeremiah wept in God's presence. Jacob was injured wrestling an emissary or angel of, the, of God. And the Apostle Paul thought that he was really speaking like a fool whenever he bragged in front of God. That scary part of God is described in the Bible as the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is awe. Jaw-dropping. We can't understand it. He's way behind us, beyond us. Awe. And awe and lack of understanding for us can be kind of a scary thing. It's kind of a good version of the fear of the Lord. But our God is too small. God can be confusing. God makes weird choices. He does things that seem unfair. 
So there is this scene uh, of Jesus' ministry in the New Testament where we're told he went to the pool by Siloam. It was believed in that day that if you sat by this pool and you had uh, some kind of um, disability, that when the pool bubbled up periodically, if you were the first one in the pool, you would be healed. And so people with disabilities gathered there all the time. There were crowds of people who gathered there, hoping to be the first one in the pool to be healed when it bubbled up the next time. Jesus shows up there one day, kind of walks through the crowd of people, and finds one man who's disabled. It happens to be a man who's been by this pool for 38 years. And, and I think Jesus, you know, asks him the question, do you really want to get well? Because it's kind of like, I mean, in 38 years you can never figure out how to be the first one in the pool when it bubbled up. I mean, it's a logical question. What have you been doing? Jesus heals that invalid man. That one man. And then turns around and walks through the entire crowd of other invalids and leaves and the man follows him. Now let me ask you a question. If you were a parent of one of those other people alongside the pool with a disability, or if it was your spouse, or if it was, you know, your mother or father, how would you feel about what Jesus just did? Why that one and not mine? Why him and not us? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem fair. God can seem unfair all the time from our perspective. But God never promised that he'd be fair. That's a human concept. And our God is too small. God makes some strange choices. I mean, at least they seem strange to us. God once said to Moses, I'll have mercy upon whom I'll have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I mean, I think we're going to be surprised when we get to heaven and we look around that banquet table and find out who else is in attendance. We're going to find some people there who were once pornographers or adulterers or liars or thieves, people who were overwhelmingly and overbearingly self-centered, People who've been in same-sex partnerships, the deceitful, those who have little respect for other human beings, they're going to be gathered around that table. And we think it's just going to be us. Remember, long before Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, he was a murderer who had to run and hide in exile before he was called to be God's leader. Remember that the Apostle Paul, before he became the Apostle Paul and wrote 13 books in the New Testament, oversaw the slaughter of thousands of Christians. I don't know about you, but those seem like odd choices to me. And our God is too small. In John 1, verse 14... John writes this about Jesus. The Word became flesh. The Word. God. The Word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's exactly the way we read it. Full of grace and truth. That's the way we read it. Grace and truth. 
not grace or truth. I've said this before in some of my messages, but I want to repeat it because I think this is a part of God's identity that we get mixed up with most of the time. We tend to move as human beings toward either grace or truth. It's hard for us to embrace grace and truth. If we pick just truth, then we become a church or individual Christians who are legalistic and judgmental. We become a church only for church people because you need to clean up your act and get your lives together before you can be a part of the body if you insist on the truth without grace. Or if you lean toward grace only, God's unmerited favor rules and reigns over everything and everything goes. Jesus came full of grace and truth. So I've quoted before from um, Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, where he encourages us as human beings to embrace the genius of and. And this was, you know, maybe 15 years ago he wrote this book and everybody, oh man, the genius of and, what... What an amazing concept. This is something new we all ought to think about together. It's going to change the way we, we do business and think as leaders. And The genius of and. It doesn't have to be either or. There might be a, a combination of the two you put together. Long before Jim Collins wrote about the genius of and, God demonstrated the genius of and in the person and the life of Jesus Christ. Andy Stanley, founder of North Point Church outside of Atlanta, has written about this idea of grace and truth. He says it's grace and truth, not, not to strike a balance between the two. Jesus brought the full measure of both, grace and truth. Stanley goes on to write, there was no conflict between grace and truth. It's that artificial conflict that sends churches and individual Christians toward unhealthy as well as unhelpful extremes. In Jesus, we discover that it doesn't have to be that way. Grace doesn't dumb down sin to make it more palatable. Grace doesn't have to. The purpose of truth isn't to isolate people from God or from his people. As we follow Jesus through the Gospels, we find him acknowledging the full implication of sin and yet not condemning sinners. Now, you know what that does? When we as Christians try to live a life that embraces the full measure of grace and truth, it makes life real messy. It's not cut and dried anymore. It's real messy. And the lines get blurry. And we become inconsistent and are seen as unfair. Because that's what grace and truth together do. That we like everything kind of nice and tidy and clean and tight. Think Think about King David, right? We read from a psalm earlier. You know, for hundreds of years, the Christian Reformed Church sang from the Psalter all these great songs that David wrote, and David is known for this, right? He's known for having a heart for God. He's known for having a heart for God. But David was also an adulterer. Bathsheba was married to somebody else. 
And then to compound the problem, David arranges for her husband to be put in the front lines so that he would be killed in battle. So that then he could have Uriah's wife. And for the longest time, nobody knew what David had done. Until one day, his pastor Nathan came to David and told him a story similar to what David had done. And Nathan said, what do you think? He said, oh, that person should have never done that. He should be punished. Well, that man is you. Nathan had delivered to David the truth about who he was and what he had done. And God continued to deliver the grace to allow him to be a man who had a heart for God and to serve as king of Israel. Jesus was going about his ministry one day, right? Comes across a crowd of people who are about to stone a woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery. The Jewish law, the Roman law, required that she be stoned. That was the just punishment for what she had done. And Jesus said to her, I do not condemn you. Grace. Now go and sin no more. Truth. At the church where Andy Stanley is pastor, this grace and truth model makes them from really, for some really messy ministry decisions. I mean, for instance, Andy Stanley himself believes that the Bible doesn't allow for women to be ordained toward ministry. He believes that's the truth of the scriptures. But they have women on their staff who perform all sorts of functions that require ordination, grace. They let non-believers serve in many roles in their church. That's grace. But not every role in their church, because that's truth. For instance, they might let musicians play in their orchestra, but not be worship leaders. It's kind of messy, but it's grace and truth. Andy preaches a severe interpretation of Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage. I mean, few people agree with what he says about it, including people that are his colleagues on his staff don't even agree with what he says. But he believes that's the truth. And yet they have all sorts of married couples who have been divorced serve at every level of leadership in their church because that's grace. Andy and his colleagues are often accused of being inconsistent and unfair. And his answer is, yes, we are. But that's the way ministry is when you're trying to put together grace and truth. If the idea of embracing the messiness of grace and truth is uncomfortable for you, remember this, he writes, either you were a mess, are a mess, or your one dumb decision away from becoming a mess. 
And when you were at your messiest, you weren't looking for truth. You were looking for someone to take you just as you were. When I was a student at Hope College, the dean of students um, was a master at hanging together the ideas of grace and truth. I mean, periodically, other students would violate the Hope College code of conduct. I mean, other people. I, I never did, but other people did. And they would have to have a meeting with the dean of students, and he would confront them with the truth. You have violated the code of conduct. There are consequences you're going to have to pay. And the consequences always were much more about grace than truth, as long as you understood the truth. He was under constant criticism by faculty members and other professors and administrators because they felt he was much too lenient. But it was this balance of truth and grace. And for that, so many college young people were grateful because it was the way they continued to live their life and to launch into a future of maturity, understanding the balance of truth and grace together. Truth and grace. Our God is too small. God's love, which we've talked a lot about today, we've read about, we've sung about, God's love is unconditional, no strings attached. There's nothing we have to do or can do to earn the love of God. And there's absolutely nothing we can do to lose the love of God. It's unconditional. Does life wear you down sometimes? Do you feel tired and weary? Jesus promises us to give us rest, to make our way easy. Unconditionally, he promises to do that. Jesus came to love sinners. Any sinners in the room? It's okay to raise your hand if you're a sinner. Seriously? Seriously. Everybody doesn't have their hand up or you're just afraid to raise your hand? You're afraid that you're going to raise your hand in church and you're Christian Reformed? You know, Pentecostals raise their hands when they worship. Christian Reformed people go like this. We won't take a picture. You can raise your hand if you're a sinner. It's all okay. Jesus came for sinners. To rescue us unconditionally. Jesus said that he came for the sick and not the well, and he came for them unconditionally. Jesus hung out with those who lived on the margins, prostitutes and thieves and others, unconditionally. Jesus regularly criticized religious leaders. His most heated arguments and his most harsh criticisms were with the religious leaders. Because they majored majored in truth and not just grace. And yet he had dinner with them all the time. Because he loved them unconditionally. Unconditional love is unconditional. I mean, there are no conditions. We like receiving unconditional love for ourselves because we know we need it. We just have a hard time giving it to other men and women because our God is too small. 
In closing, let's remember this about God. That God is with us. Jesus said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. God is always with us. Now, it doesn't always feel like God is with us. We're not always aware that God is with us. In fact, sometimes we wonder if God is with us. But God is always with us. And not just in the sense of being physically with us, but he is beside us. And God is also for us. God wants the best for us. Sometimes life is difficult and painful and harsh. The way we say it here frequently is that, is that life is hard and faith is weak. And that's the truth of the matter. But God is always for us, even when it doesn't feel like it. And most importantly, God is always ahead of us. Jesus was the good shepherd. Sheep can't be herded from behind. They can only be led by the shepherd to the next spot. He leadeth me. He leadeth me beside the quiet waters. He leads me. God always goes ahead of us. Now, we've all experienced the love of God if we're paying attention. I write these weekly reflections, and they're based on an idea that I borrowed from Frederick Beekner called Listening to Life. If you listen to life, you see God in everything. Karen referred to that in her prayer this morning. If you're paying attention, you see God everywhere. Are you paying attention? We've all experienced the love of God. When our children or our grandchildren laugh and play and cuddle with us, we experience the love of God. We've experienced the love of God when we have been overwhelmed by his grace, knowing that we're undeserving. We've experienced God's love when we have people who accept us and love us, who listen to us when we're confused, who confront us when we're making poor decisions, and walk with us as we're living with the consequences of those poor decisions. We're experiencing the love and the grace of God. So we read this earlier together. But God knows his people. And frequently the scriptures are redundant. And so from the department of redundancy, let's one more time read from 1 John chapter 4 responsibly together. Dear friends, dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. This is how God showed his love among us. This is love. But that he loved us. Dear friends, since God so loved us, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, 
If we love one another, God lives in us. Let us pray together. And so, O Lord, we confess, each and every one of us, that our God is too small. We can never completely understand you. We can never completely define you. We can never completely explain you. And so we embrace the mystery and we trust you. Thank you for your patience, for your kindness, for your perseverance, and for your unconditional love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.